Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. Well, today, again, we're jumping back in uh, to the book of Hebrews. And uh, so if you're following along, we're in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and again, this is something we've been studying over the summer. And uh, the book of Hebrews, what you need to understand is it's probably the most Old Testament book of the New Testament. The most Old Testament book of the New Testament. Why do I say that? Because many of the concepts that we have been diving into and and looking into in terms of of how they apply and and what was the purpose of them, things like the priesthood, things like rest and and Sabbath and sacrifices and and, and highlighting people of the faith like Abraham and Moses and and things like that. And today we're going to look a little bit into the, the tabernacle part. Those were all Old Testament shadows, things that were a part of uh, the religion of Judaism, part of how God related to his people, and we're going to look today as far as the Old Covenant is concerned, that were a shadow, and we're going to learn about this, we're going to read about it today, a shadow or a copy of what was coming, foreshadowing, and had their fulfillment in Jesus and in this new covenant that we're going to talk about today. And so this is the most Old Testament book of, of probably the New Testament. And so to fully understand this, we, we need to understand this idea uh, and these concepts and unpack some of these concepts so we understand what is the writer referring to in the Old Testament so that we can begin to understand things in the New Testament. Now, some people when they take a look at the Bible, they, they, they look at it, Old, Old Testament, New Testament, and some people take an abbreviated approach. In other words, they, they like, well, you know, I just don't understand that Old Testament thing, so I'm just going to read the New Testament only. And then there are some people that say, well, the New Testament's good, but man, I really love the Old Testament and spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. And so I just want to take just a, a moment because I think that sometimes if you only read the New Testament and you don't understand the Old Testament, then you miss the very foundational things and your understanding of some of what is shared in the New Testament is really impacted by your lack of understanding in the Old Testament. And likewise, if you spend all of your time in the Old Testament, then what you don't realize is, is what Jesus came to do. And you might be living in a sense of this religious obligation stuck underneath this idea of the law and wondering how, we're going to get into that today, how do I, how do I live according to, to this? This seems restrictive. I, I don't understand. How can I miss the freedom that we have in Christ? And so I, I, I want to just give you three helpful pictures when you consider the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, because we're going to talk about Old Covenant, New Covenant today. But I want to give you three possible pictures of how to look at this idea of the Bible within Old Testament and New Testament. I think the, the, the first is that, that you can view the Bible as a book that maybe has some of the answers 
to what you're looking for, understanding of the concepts in the back of the book. Now, I'm, I'm currently back in school again in my master's degree, and I have sometimes some textbooks that, that when I'm reading through and I don't understand a particular term or concept, in the back of the book, there's a, there's a glossary of terms or there are appendixes in the back of the book that I can look to that can help me better understand what I'm reading right now. And that's the way sometimes we, we take a look at the Bible, we, we think that perhaps the New Testament is kind of that, that glossary of things that helps us understand some of the things that, that we're reading about back over here. Now, that's a little bit incomplete, but it is true that the New Testament does bring a lot of clarity to some of the things and the concepts that you may not understand in the Old Testament. And likewise, the Old Testament can bring clarity to some of the things that you might be able to find in the New Testament. I think another way to look at it is like a detective novel. You know, if you're reading through a detective novel, as you're reading through, there might be glimpses and bits and pieces of information, evidence that kind of is, is supporting what the conclusion might end up to be. And so as you're reading along, you're, you're getting a little bit here and a little bit there and a little piece here. And then finally, when you get towards the end, you go, oh, that's how all of these pieces fit together. And there are times when we read the Bible, and I think that's, a, that's a, an accurate understanding as there are times where we get glimpses in the Old Testament, bits and pieces, but then we start to read the New Testament, we go, oh, now I see how some of that is coming together. And so sometimes that's a way to, to look at it, but I think probably the best illustration, the one I'm going to lean on today, is looking at the Bible as kind of a two-act play. When I, was, when I was growing up in high school, I was a, I was a part of the, the, the drama club. Imagine that. I was a part of the drama club. And we did, we did, we did different plays. And, and oftentimes we did two-act plays and there was an intermission in the beginning. And so a way that you can take a look at that is, is similar. John Bright, uh, an Old Testament scholar, is the one who kind of described the Bible first this way. And he pointed out that, that without either act, the play is incomplete. Each act has something individual to say, but neither can stand on its own without the other act. And so when we think of the Bible, we have to take a look that it provides this balanced understanding of, of two testaments or two acts. The Old Testament, or what's called the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, which is called the New Covenant. And, and it's kind of this balanced understanding in, us, in order for us to really get a full picture of the gospel. In Act 1, we can begin with, with, with this, this, this tension. God creates this beautiful world, and it's perfect, and, and, and it's fulfillment. It's perfect. And he, and he sets man in the garden, and he gives man a helpmate, and there they are to rule and reign over this garden. And things are perfect until the tension begins. And the tension begins when all of a sudden this serpent comes in and begins to get man and woman to doubt the truth of God's word and begins to introduce that doubt and they disobey God and they rebel against him and all of a sudden we're introduced to this tension in the story and that tension is seen throughout the Old Testament as you 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 have this tension between a holy God a God who is holy and righteous and has said that, that if you eat of that, you will die. And, and we see later on in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. 
right? And there is none righteous, no, not one. So you have man introducing unrighteousness in a holy God. What is a holy God supposed to do? Does he, does he go through with destroying mankind? And all of a sudden, as they try to clothe themselves, what they try to clothe themselves with is imperfect. And you see that all of a sudden he takes, and there's an animal clothing that comes. What happens? A sacrifice. And we begin to see this idea of sacrifice. And we begin to, 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 to get some of these concepts that you see where there is this, this, this unholiness of man and there has to be a sacrifice or some kind of a substitute. And as you move through the tensions in the Old Testament, you come to the place where where you, you begin to see the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus, suddenly you begin to get a greater degree of context to where the blood of the lamb is a substitute for what God wants to take in the firstborn. What is rightfully what God, a holy and just God, what is rightfully his, suddenly can be satisfied when there is a substitute and a lamb. And the lamb takes the place of the person because of their sin. And the blood over the doorpost provides a, a substitute, but you have this idea of sacrifice and worship and you get this entire picture of, of these, these religious things that are going on. And you begin to say, well, what, what does this mean? How, how, does this, how does this happen? And you see all the while that, that this system and there's establishment of the law and the Ten Commandments, but this system seems, seems incomplete. It doesn't keep the people of God serving God. He says to them, I make a covenant with you. Here's, my, here's what I want. And if you obey these things, blessings will be yours. But if you don't obey these things, cursing will follow and you will, you will be out of the land. And we see that the law doesn't do anything to keep people's hearts united with Jesus. I mean, just go back to it. Right in the way he gives them the law, Moses goes up on the hill for 40 days. And, and, and in just 40 days later, after God appears to them, what happens? They say, well, we need an idol. Who are we going to worship? They take their jewelry, and they put it together, and they mold it, and there's, there's a golden calf, and they're dancing around a golden calf. They just had the law. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, and all of a sudden, in less than 40 days, they're sinning against God. There is a problem. There is a covenant, but there is a, a problem. And you begin to see this back and forth and, and, and this uh, with the people, and you say, there, there, there's a problem. We can't help but see the problem. Thus then comes in Act 2. And, and, and in, in Act 2, the same fundamental principles, but now we begin to understand a little bit of some of these ideas in Act 1. As we begin to see that, that Jesus becomes the substitute. That Jesus, as John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you only start in Acts 2 and you, you read that, and, and you, you read how John says that, you think the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What, am I missing something? What's happening? And you can't understand that unless you, you go back and you begin to read something that set it up in, in Act 1. And you can't really understand fully what Jesus Christ has done unless you understand some of the things that foreshadowed those things that were coming. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then you see what Jesus did who, who stepped in to my place that when I was deserving of death, he stepped in instead and took my place. But, but wow, how do I understand that apart? So, you, so there's some things in the, in the New Testament that, 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 we, we, that we, we haven't quite, 
we can't quite understand unless we, we get act one. It can stand on its own, but it's, but it's incomplete without act one because Hebrews 8.5, where we're going to be, Hebrews 8.5 says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. He's talking about the priesthood here. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern showing you on the mountain. The pattern showing you on the mountain is a pattern of, of the worship and the way that it would be in heaven. And that really understand this idea of Jesus as our high priest that we've been, we've been taking a look at the last couple of weeks. You really have to understand the, the copy and the shadow of the tabernacle and the priesthood and the way it was in the Old Testament. They were a shadow and a copy. In Acts chapter 2, we get a picture of Jesus as human perfection and a willing substitute. And the, the pieces of, of Act 1 and the sacrificial system and the priesthood and, 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 and the tabernacle and worship begin to, 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 to suddenly come together in a greater degree of understanding when you get to Act 2. And you begin to understand things through the lens of, of the New Testament being a fulfillment of the things of the old. The things of the old. Now, I, let, me, let me give you a picture. Old Testament, New Testament, they, they have one theme. There's a theme that runs. It's the gospel. It's the, the theme of Jesus that runs through the entire Bible. This theme of, of brokenness and redemption and, and, and these pictures of who Jesus is. This theme runs both Old and New Testament, Act 1 and Act 2. And Alistair Begg shares a great analogy. I just love it. I, had to, I have to share it with you. And, and he says, in the Old Testament, we have Jesus predicted. In the Old Testament, we have Jesus predicted. Then in the Gospels, we have Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have Jesus revealed. And then in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we have Jesus preached. And then in the epistles in which Hebrews that we're looking at is, is one of those, uh, we have Jesus explained. And then in the book of Revelation, we have Jesus expected. Jesus expected. I just think that's a really great picture. If you've ever kind of wanted to break it down, I think that's a really great way to kind of break it down. But, but really, you can summarize the whole Bible in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But you don't fully understand the work of Jesus Christ without understanding Act 1. So in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer is pulling from these, what these believers understood. Remember, many of them were Jewish believers who had been challenged by uh, those who had not converted to following Jesus Christ. Remember, following Jesus as the Messiah was not something that everybody in Judaism adopted. And so they were still going to the temple, and many of them were still bringing offering and sacrifices up until the temple was destroyed. They, they were still going to the, high, the, the priestly system and the high priest that was, was there in, the, in, in, the, in the, the temple of Jerusalem. And remember, one of the things that got Jesus crucified was the fact that Jesus said that this, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days raise it up, and they didn't quite understand what he was talking about. <laughs> they, they didn't get it, but that was one of the reasons they thought he was speaking out against the temple. He was speaking out against the temple. So one of the, the marks against Christianity was that, that Christianity was taking Jewish believers away from things that were very, very important to them. Things like the, the temple, things like sacrifices, things like the high priest. And so many of them were being challenged by friends and family they'd grown up with and said, 
what are you following? What, what, what is this the way? What is this, this, this new faith that you're following? You are in error. You are heading the wrong way. And so they were challenging them to come back. And so the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Let me go back and let me show you. These things back here were a copy of what is fulfilled in Jesus. They were just foreshadowing. We're not, we're not doing away with it, but we're stepping into what it always meant to be. What it always had meant to be. And he says, listen, you do have a priest. You do have a high priest. You do have a mediator that you go to. But he doesn't sit in an earthly temple or an earthly tabernacle. He has his throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father. You, 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 listen, you, you don't have to, you, you say, well, what about the sacrifice? You, you have a sacrifice in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Jesus Christ who is both priest and sacrifice. You've had your sacrifice and your atonement. This is what Hebrews chapter 8 is unpacking. We're now getting to the, to the meat of, of why. Because hey, friends, <laughs> understand this. Everything there was a shadow. Let me show you how it connects. Let me show you how it connects. And it connects in a, a new and better covenant. That was part of the old covenant. And not that that was that was bad, but that was, that, was, that was insufficient to do what a new covenant is, is going to do, what has been established in Jesus, this new covenant. And so let's talk a little bit about this new covenant. I want to give you evidence as to why this new covenant is a better covenant. Why is the new covenant a better covenant from the old? And I, man, I'm really excited about this. First, it's given by a superior high priest. It's given by a superior high priest. I know we've been after this for the last couple of weeks. A priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, hang with me. There's, a, there's a, been a declaration that's been building and observed as we've been, been looking these last couple of weeks that God provided the people with a, a sacrificial system of worship that involved an imperfect human mediator. An imperfect human mediator. Again, from the ancestry of Aaron and the tribe of Levi, but there were some problems with the early priesthood. Each human priest would eventually die and a new priest would take his place. If we flip back one chapter again to chapter 7 and verse 23, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. That they would die, and then there would have to be somebody that would replace them. That was a flaw in terms of the priesthood. There was a, there was a flaw. Every, they would die. But that wasn't the only flaw. The other problem was is that these human priests were weak and sinful themselves, and the writer points out that they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could offer sacrifices for the people. We talked about these things before, but, but it's different with Jesus, with Jesus, it's different. Why? Because with Jesus, he has a moral adequacy that is excellent. With Jesus, there is no sin. Look at Hebrews 7, 26 and 27. says, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. 
Jesus not being after the order of Aaron, but as we talked about, after the order of Melchizedek as both priest and king was also sinless. He was blameless. Therefore, he is a superior high priest because of his moral excellence. That's what you need to understand in Hebrews 8.1. I needed to give that foundation because as we look at Hebrews 8.1, it says now the main point, we're getting to the point. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. We do have such a high priest. In Jesus, if it took a moral excellent high priest, a high priest that was not sinless and one who would not die, friends, guess what? They might be telling you, you don't have something like that. Who's your high priest? You don't even have a high priest. And then we say, oh, yes, we do. And his name is Jesus, and he is superior, and he is more excellent. We do. He fits the role perfectly. But here's something really, really cool. We also have a high priest who finished his work, who finished his work. Hebrews 8.1, again, now the main point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest, now look at this, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human being. I want to point something out, who sat down. Now, to fully understand this, we got to go back to Act 1. And in Act 1, to fully understand the role of the high priest, you need to understand that when, when in Exodus, when the furnishings were, were, were being told, when the map and the foreshadowing and the copy of the te- temple and, and the tabernacle were being, being done and, and put there, there were certain furnishings that were in the tabernacle. There was the, the altar and the lamp and the laver and, and, and the wash bay, all of these things but there was no chairs. Oh, there was the mercy seat, but that wasn't something you sat down on. All right, <laughs> you didn't do that. There was no place for the priest to sit, why? Because their work was never done. Just as soon as they would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people, somebody would sin again, and they'd have to do it all over again. Somebody would sin again. There's a, there's a phrase in, in, in Scotland for when work is never finished. They say it's like painting the fourth bridge. Painting the fourth bridge. Well, the fourth bridge, if you don't know, in Edinburgh, Scotland, Edinburgh, Scotland, is in 1964, it was built, the longest suspension bridge at that time in the UK, and it was so long. And, 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 and what would happen is, is they wanted to keep the bridge nice, and so they would repaint it. And so somebody would start on one end, and they'd repaint one end, and they'd go all the way down, and they'd get to the end. And as soon as they get to the end, the, what, what happened in the beginning started to flake off again because of the elements and because of the, the weather and those kind of things. And they'd have to go go back and they'd have to start all over again and they'd start all over again and they go back and they go back and as soon as they got to the end oh it's bad again we got to start all and it was like never ever done that was the work of the priests the work of the priests at that time was never ever done and so there was no furnishings for them to ever sit down oh but Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1 says that we have a high priest who sat down indicating that the work is finished. The work is finished. 
once and for all, no longer needing to offer the sacrifices again, but his own sacrifice of himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was full and final and finished in Christ Jesus. When he was on that cross and said, it is finished, he then took his place and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus didn't just sit, but it's where he sat. He sat on a throne because not only is he our great high priest, but he is our king and our ruler. He is King Jesus. He is King Jesus. And that leads to the final characteristic, and that is Christ's exaltation. He dwells in the heavens. Ephesians says that he is exalted in the heavens higher than anyone else. And the conclusion then seems reasonable that our high priest is superior and because he is superior, he needs to mediate a better covenant, a new covenant, a superior covenant. The second evidence that we have is not only do we have a superior high priest, but we also know that this covenant was given in a better place. It's given in a better place. Verse three, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer, meaning Jesus. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he wrote about, uh, wrote about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern showing you on the mountain. Again, we're referencing Act, act 1. We're referencing Act 1 in the Old Testament, the Old Testament tabernacle. It was the place on earth. It was the place where the priests would mediate the covenant. It was the place where they would offer the sacrifices. And again, that priest around the, the Levitical tribe uh, and, and, and Aaron's tribe, that priest would then mediate here on earth and would, would offer the sacrifice. The sacrifice was to mediate between them and a holy God and a sinful people and mediate the relationship. But once again, that was something that had to be done over and over and over. And, and, and so Jesus couldn't, as, as from the tribe of Judah, he, 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 he couldn't go and just be, replace the priests here on earth. No, he needed to do it in a better place, in a better place. And what was that better place? If it wasn't here, where, where is that better place? Well, it's not an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple, but rather it is in the very throne room of God, the one in which the copy and the shadow that Moses had, had gotten the picture of that is a copy of what is actually in heaven, the heavenly covenant, what is in heaven Therefore, he ministers the new covenant from a different place. He ministers the new covenant from a heavenly place, a heavenly tabernacle in the very presence of God. Again, a copy of the holy of holies, and he gives himself to, 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 to mediate that covenant in a better place, a heavenly place, where he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. And third evidence is this, that this covenant is founded on better promises. This is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. Hebrews chapter 8, 6, and 7. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For there had been nothing wrong, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for, for another. How many know that the world is full of people who overpromise and underdeliver? The world is full of people who overpromise 
and undeliver. Every, every product, every car, every service, you, 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 you got to buy this. You got to buy this. This is the best. This is superior. This is the best. You, you got to buy this. And then, and then what happens? You buy it and you realize it's not as good as they, they said they were until something new comes out. And, eh, you know, maybe I'll try that because that's, that's got to be, that's got to be better, right? Until it fails, it's better. But Jesus ministers a new covenant, again, from a different place, a heavenly tabernacle. And Jesus never fails. Jesus never fails. He doesn't over-promise and under-deliver. He always over-delivers on what he promises. He over-delivers on what he's promised. And his covenant, this new covenant, is better because it is founded on better promises. It's founded on better promises promises. It doesn't mean that something was wrong with the old covenant, but there was a fault to it. It was incomplete. There was something to it that was incomplete. If act one was sufficient, then we would still live in act one. We wouldn't be needing an act two. But the problem is, is act one was not sufficient in and of itself, and therefore an act two was needed. And the writer of Hebrews, in quoting from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, begins to unpack why this new covenant is better than the old what is the fault of the old covenant and why was the new covenant needed and better what is it founded on what are these better promises well let's take a look starting in verse 8 but God found fault with the people and said the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah and it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them declares the Lord this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, uh, say uh, to one, uh, one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Verse eight points to this idea of a new covenant and when Jeremiah wrote this, he wrote this hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus would come and give a new covenant. He wrote it hundreds and hundreds of years. He, 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 he prophesied about them. He said, there's going to come a time. There's going to come a time when, when there's going to be a new covenant because God has found fault with the old covenant. There's been some fault with the old covenant. It's not the, the fault of the old covenant. The problem is it's a fault of the people who can't follow the old covenant. It's the fault of the people. And I'm going to write this covenant at the very center of their lives. Marcus Dodds, uh, Old Testament commentator, he says something very helpful. This is what he said. The old covenant was faulty because it did not provide for an enabling, for enabling the people to live up to the terms and conditions of it. It was faulty inasmuch as it did not sufficiently provide against their faultiness. Let me highlight that last sentence again. It was faulty inasmuch as it did not sufficiently provide against their faultiness. In other words, as people, we just didn't have what it takes to follow God's righteous standard or his laws. The Old Testament established God's holy and righteous standard, God's holy and righteous covenant, 
and said, I want you to live by this. This is the way you ought to live. This is the covenant. This is the way you ought to live. The problem was, is the people were insufficient, did not have the power or the ability to be able to live up to the old covenant. It was not that the laws were faulty, rather the inability of the people. And see, that's the problem with external religion that tries to, 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 to simply follow laws in and of themselves or by themselves. I'm going to be honest with you, we can't do it. That's where every religion fails. Every religion has some type of criteria that you have to live up to. Every, every religion has a, an external way in which you are to live up in some kind of external standards and things you are supposed to do in order to be able to live up to them. The problem is, friends, we are unable to do that. It's incomplete because we still, when we live simply externally, we still carry the burden of our sin. We still carry the weight and the burden of our sin. Our conscience continues to riddle us with guilt until we begin to understand that we are insufficient to deal with our own faultiness. In and of ourselves, we can't deal with our own faultiness. That was the problem. The people and God, this covenant between them and God, yes, we'll obey, yes, we'll do these things, except we can't obey and do these things. There's a faultiness inside of us, and no matter how much we try to will ourselves to do it, in and of ourselves, in and of our own will, we are simply unable. There is an insufficiency in ourselves to be able to do it. It was faulty in that way. Thus God says, I'm going to establish a new covenant. A new covenant. And if you remember what, what Jesus said on the night in which he was betrayed, he gave thanks. And he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. This is a, a new covenant I give you in my blood in my blood. And Jeremiah tells us what this new covenant does for us. What is it with this new covenant that makes it more sufficient than the old covenant? Well, number one, the superiority of the priest who offers that covenant, who, who takes the, the sacrifice of himself and his blood and sprinkles it on the altar. He, he is the one who offers this new covenant. And this new covenant is based on what? What promises? Here's the first promise internal transformation internal transformation listen the old covenant was written on tablets of stone but the new covenant jeremiah says will be written on the heart i'm going to take my laws and i'm going to i'm going to write them on your heart i'm going to write them on your heart the new covenant provides an internal renovation of our character it's not just simply about the outward we we want to imitate Jesus but we might fall short it's not just about imitation friends it's about transformation if we focus on outward behavior I'm going to try harder I'm going to try harder I'm going to try harder we won't be able to do it but the new covenant with the internal transformation and the giving of the Holy Spirit empowers us to be able to obey in a way that we never could before that gives us a desire to obey 
Unfortunately, when we try to live our life apart from Jesus, simply in an external way, we still live in the guiltiness of our own sinful condition and we never truly come to to true faith because we haven't submitted and allowed Jesus to bring transformation. We simply add an external religion to everything else we try. Without Jesus, that, is, that does not allow us to have the power that we need. Jesus, by his experience and by his sacrifice, allowed for the very covenant of those laws to be written on our hearts and to transform us from the inside out. Inward transformation. The new covenant writes those and empowers us through the Holy Spirit, so that you and I can live transformed. Secondly, we can have a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship to know God. Look at verse 11. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, This is not saying that we don't need mentors or teachers in our lives, okay? There are some who like to take this verse out of context, and that's because they don't understand Act 1. If you just read this from an Act 2 perspective, then you say, I don't need anybody to teach me. God will be the only one. He's the only one that needs to teach me, and we don't need teachers. And again, that is not biblical, nor does it fit in the whole scope of the Bible when you have mentors and disciplers and teachers. Jesus was a discipler. He had disciples, and his disciples had disciples, and he said to go and make disciples. So just throw that out the door. What, what, what does this mean then? What does this mean? When God was establishing the Old Covenant, let's go back to Act 1, when God was establishing the Old Covenant, God brought the people out of Egypt and he led them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. It was there that he was establishing and giving them the Old Covenant. And when, or, and when he brought them to that first covenant and he brought them there, God was holy and he was powerful. And on the mountain, there was smoke and there was fire and there was thunder because of God's holiness. And God spoke the covenant, the Ten Commandments to the people. You can see it in Exodus chapter 20. And then following this giving of the old covenant and following this experience with God right there on the outside, God right there with the mountain of God happening, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 18. Here's how the people responded. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, They trembled with fear, and they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Here's the problem. God was holy and the people were not. And they recognized the holiness of God. And they saw the holiness of God. And rather than draw near to God and have an encounter and know the Lord, they said, we'd rather stay at a distance. And Moses, you're a little less scary. So you go and hear from God. And you tell us what God says. And we'll listen to you. They stayed in the distance. And that's the problem with the old covenant. Is that oftentimes the old covenant had to be mediated in such a way 
that people stayed at a distance and they didn't really know God and they said, you tell me about God. You tell me about God. You tell me about God. Just tell me what I need to know. Just tell me what I need to know and I'll listen to you. Meanwhile, what God has wanted since the very beginning is that every one of his people would draw near and know him. Would draw near and know him through their mediator, Jesus Christ, the one who makes them right with God and the ability to be able to approach God and get to know God and know him intimately and know him well. The problem is external religion always keeps us at a distance from God because we know I'm not living up, I'm not living up, I've got guilt, I've got shame, and oh, no, I've got to stay over here because I need something else in between. Friends, with Jesus Christ and the new covenant, the laws of God are written on your heart, the transformation from the inside out, and God invites you to draw near, to draw near, to draw near. Don't stay at a distance, but you will know me. You will know me. You won't have to have somebody else in between. Oh, don't stay at a distance. Don't just wait for somebody else. Draw near and know me. Draw near and know me. If you're not drawing near and you don't know the Lord, you're missing out and you might simply be living an old covenant way of life in a new covenant world. You just are all concerned about, I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got to, and if that is your relationship, if that's your version of Christianity, you are living in an old covenant world, and you haven't understood the new covenant, and the transformation that Jesus wants to bring, and the drawing near, so that you can know him, so that you can know him. Oh, all right. The last benefit, real quick, it shouldn't be quick, but it's quick. Complete forgiveness of sin. Look at verse 12. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, when, we're, when the laws are written on our heart and it moves from being external to internal and when we begin to draw near to God and know him, we begin to know his forgiveness in such a way that we no longer live under the burden of guilt and under the burden of shame and under the burden of fear. Instead, we know God, we know him, and we know that we walk in complete forgiveness and grace. You walk in complete forgiveness, complete forgiveness. Why? Because Christ, who is the fulfillment of the shadow, both the sacrifice and high priest, has made it so that once for all our sins are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, I will remember your sins no more. And how do you know that? Not simply because some pastor up on a platform is yelling at you and telling you to know that, but you know it because he's written it on your heart. You know it because you've drawn near. You know it because on the inside you go I'm forgiven I'm free I know it I know it because you know him because your great high priest sits on the throne of your heart and you know it and you know it so as we close friends Jesus is a superior high priest He has given us a new covenant, a better covenant, a superior covenant that doesn't just show us how to live, but empowers us to be able to live in the way that he desires this wonderful, forgiven relationship with God. The work of Christ, the work that he came to do is finished. 
it is finished. He's provided everything that we need in our relationship with him. The question is, are you still living an old covenant life in a new covenant world? Are you still living an old covenant life where you are where you're not sure you're forgiven, where you are just trying yourself and you've come up and fail and you go, oh, I can't do this. Then you've got to step into a new covenant world and you've got to know Jesus. You've got to let Jesus begin an inward transformation in your heart. You've got to draw near and know him. And when you know him, you'll be able to go, I am completely forgiven. I am set free. Hallelujah, I'm set free. Thank God Almighty, I'm set free. Do you know him? Do you know him? Let's bow our heads today. Friends, do you know Jesus today? (laughs) Have, Have you experienced that forgiveness today? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Have you experienced that transformation on the inside that he desires to do in your heart? If you haven't experienced that today, I want to invite you to surrender your life to Christ, to put your hope and your faith in him. If that's you, will you slip up your hand, Pastor? I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to know Jesus in that way. I need to know his forgiveness in that way. If you're watching online, will you let us know in the comments? I need to give my life to Jesus. Father, we just thank you today that you're a better high priest and that you've offered us a better covenant, one that is written on our hearts and that empowers us to do what we cannot do on our own, one in which we can walk in complete freedom and forgiveness of our sins. Father, we thank you today for all that you've done for us, for who you are, and we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.